Yotam Otolengi, a man whose surname makes your mouth water. Chef, restaurateur, best-selling author and pioneer. An Israeli with a Palestinian business partner. Whose Middle East meets Mediterranean ethos has turned vegetables into the main attraction. Transforming the cauliflower from school dinner has-been to dinner party favourite. And brought a different philosophy to food. So there's a lot of context, a lot of techniques, there's a lot of, you know, rhythm, the equivalent of rhythm in cooking. There's just tons of variables to play with. In this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels, I sit down with Yotam Otolengi to talk recipes, peace, parenting, and the big personal insight he's come to. Brilliant Brains is supported by Karmacist, some excellent new supplements for mood, immunity, energy, and de-stressing, which frankly I need all of. Karmacist rather cleverly brings to the party Nutrigenomics, a breakthrough branch of science, and ancient herbs like amla, gotu cola, reishi, and saffron. That's some party. So you get the best of what their scientists at Harvard and Stanford have been discovering, together with the know-how of plants we've been using for thousands of years. Check out Karmacists, sort of karma and pharmacist, at karmacist.com for some fabulous formulations for mood, immunity, energy, and de-stressing, which come in some rather lovely jars too. And you can get a lovely 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Right, back to Yotam Otolengi. So we sit here, it's been a strange few months. Have you been comfort eating? So yes, absolutely. I, I've, I feel that I've, this has all been helped by my young children. I've got two sons, one is five and the other is seven. And we've been stuck in a house with each other and my husband for a very long time during lockdown and the, the semi-lockdown. And so everything has been really focused on cooking for children. <laughs> and that is comfort food in many ways, because my kids are not terribly adventurous in their eating, but they're also not too shy. So they're somewhere in the middle on this continuum. But their first choice would always be, you know, a bowl of pasta or something, something of the starch family. And uh, so we've done a lot of that because um, I've got given up fighting with them. And actually, they eat vegetables as well. So I don't mind anymore. Do you think when they're teenagers, their greatest act of rebellion is going to be, I don't want any cauliflower? <laughs> they're already doing that. They're not the biggest cauliflower eaters already. So, I mean, I think they're, I think what will their act of rebellion will be to maybe want to just eat you know, junk food, that would be quite hard for me to watch. So you did something quite pioneering. You and your partner, Cole, pushed through the bureaucracy and had children through surrogacy, which felt like it was kind of unusual at the time. Does it feel like it's become more normalized? Has anything changed? There's more of it, but not tons. I mean, you know, we are even in our, our kind of North London rarefied environment. We don't have a lot of um, there aren't a lot of kids in the school with two dads or two moms. It's still relatively rare. It's not unusual in the sense that it makes you feel like a bizarre preacher in, the, you know, in those environments, but it is still not uh, the norm. Why not? It's a good question. I, I, it's also a cultural thing. Like in Israel and America, gay people have more children than they do here in the UK. And uh, maybe people are, uh, aren't, rushing to have kids in this country as they do in other culture. Maybe it's part of the Jewish culture where you haven't lived your life if you haven't had kids. I'm not quite sure, but it's happening, but not to that in that kind of pace that it used to. And also the other thing is that they haven't really made surrogacy so simple in this country. So it's 
it's um we've done it in America and it was very expensive to have our kids because our surrogate and uh, lived in America was it the same woman for both children yeah and here there isn't really still the legal underpinning that allows for that to happen easily so it's still quite more complicated to have a kid through surrogacy here in the UK. What kind of relationship do you have with the surrogate? It must be pretty unusual. Uh, it's less crazy than you think. Our surrogate, who you know, we love to bits, has four of her own kids, and she raises them. And you know, the the youngest one is just about to. Well, this, the second youngest one has just finished high school, so she's got older kids and. She sends us pictures, and and so we we kind of are remotely involved in what's going on in her life. And obviously, we send her photos of Max and Flynn, and we chat, and you know, on birthdays and all the rest. And it feels quite normal somehow. It doesn't feel so unusual. I guess that's just all we know, and the kids know, and you know, they they know that's the woman that you know gave birth to us, and we've got a picture of her on our on the wall, and it's just it's. It's not so unusual in our in our little world, but for an outsider, maybe it looks bizarre. And I guess all throughout this time, you've had your restaurants, your empire to keep going. How do you see the future of eating out? It's very hard to tell, isn't it? Like in every department where you look in this world, the future is so vague and unclear and terrifying. And restaurants are one of the worst hit. Have you had any sort of personal change in your priorities? Do you think you know, when this is all over, I need to do more of this or, or less of that. In the future, I, I do think this has really changed the way I, I look at things. And I think like, okay, actually, I really want to maybe make sure that I spend more time doing things for myself and my family. You know, I've, we've, I've been a lot outdoors. I haven't been a, such an outdoorsy person before. And I really enjoy the outdoors. And I want to do more of that. It's it's just the priorities are just so there's a certain clarity about priorities. They really, yeah, they will change. I really think they will. We just need to survive first, and then and then move forward. So famously, you came to London from Israel, and your business partner Sami Tamimi is Palestinian. When you go back to Israel, and your mum's still there, do you still get inspired by the food and flavors there? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that is really interesting that has has happened in Israel is that ability, which is not easy to do, is to kind of take ingredients, local ingredients, and really reinvent them in a modern context. So often you go to a country which has a really strong tradition of cooking and you, you watch how it's been spoiled by, you know, trying to over fancify it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a typical predicament that you go to certain places and you're like, I have such better food on the streets than I do eating in a fancy restaurant. But in Israel, it's been really interesting what's been going on over the last decade or even longer, where there is um, real creativity in, in, in a way that ingredients that are so local Palestinian ingredients and Palestinian cooking traditions and Jewish cooking traditions from various diaspora coming together in really interesting ways. And and that's actually also quite political because the the recognition that Israeli food is getting now is incredible. But also more recently people understood that it's also Palestinian food that they need to look at because a lot of the credit has been wrongly given to Israeli chefs well actually it's Palestinian cooking that they've been channeling uh, through around the world. So and and there's been a bunch of really interesting cookbooks. One of them was by Sami Tamimi. 
and Tara Wigley, who's also working with me, and they've been telling the story of Palestinian cooking, which is uh, super interesting, first of all, as a, as a national cuisine, but also in terms of how regional it is within Palestine. There's all these interesting regions of cooking. So uh, this has, has come out as well. So you got like modern Israeli with all the innovation. You got Palestinian cooking. And all these stories are being told now and people are kind of realizing how delicious this is. How are you and Sami now seen, I guess, in Israel and in the, the Palestinian areas as well? I don't really know how we're seen. I mean, uh, um, funnily enough, my name is not so well known in Israel or Sami's as it is here or in other parts of the world. So we haven't been quite embraced in our native countries as, as the, we, are, we are in other places. Why not? Not quite sure. I mean, we our first cookbook, the Ottolenghi cookbook, <laughs> has been published in Israel, in Hebrew. Um, I don't think it's done very well. Uh, and then since then, no other books, even Jerusalem, which was like an amazing international success story, hasn't really been translated to, to Arabic or to, or to Hebrew. It's, it's been sold really well there, but in English. So it's a small chunk of the market that actually bought it. I could kind of present a theory in which that combination of a Palestinian and, and a Jew working together, it bothers people. I'm not quite sure that's the whole picture. I, I think possibly it's got to do with the fact that we have been outsiders for quite a long time. And there's this like, you don't need to teach us. You haven't even lived here for like 20 years. So that could be a reason. You have a new cookbook out, Flavor. Congratulations. Um, I always wonder for someone like yourself, when it comes to creating a recipe, is it a bit like a musician writing a pop song? I actually asked that question myself a few times. How many iterations and you know combinations are there that you can still it can still be exciting? Because after all, there is a limited number of ingredients that you can use, and uh, so there's a lot of context, a lot of techniques. There's a lot of you know rhythm, the equivalent of rhythm in cooking, which is maybe the the the, the texture. So there's there's just tons of variables to play with, but. To create new recipes, I mean, my formula, if you like, was that my books are normally collaborations now. The reason is that, like, Flavor, which is the latest, is I've co-written it with Easter Belfridge, who's uh, been working as a chef in my test kitchen for the last four years, and you're a neighbor of my test kitchen in Camden. And uh, she's got an incredible, um, incredibly interesting, diverse background with... Uh, time spent in Mexico and some, and she's half Brazilian and uh, many years in Italy. And all that rich background is really coming in handy in terms of like enriching what we do in the test kitchen because every person that works there, and it's not a massive number of people, normally two or three people are cooking in the test kitchen. They have different stories and different backgrounds and they've gone through different things in their lives and all that ends up in the books. I think if it was only for me, it would probably be very boring and I've, I've lost my ability to invent new things so flavors your eighth book you essentially reduce cooking down to three p's um process pairing and produce talk me through that so first there were the recipes there wasn't a concept in which to which we fitted recipes because for me that doesn't work for me a, a good cookbook starts with from a group of recipes and then you look at it and you say oh what's in there so that's that's how it worked and uh, when we uh, looked at the recipes that we 
chose for the book and loved so much, I tried to break it down. Like, what is it actually that's going on here? Because it's a book that focuses on vegetables. And I tried to, to break it down. So for instance, acidity is something that goes on throughout my cooking, but just in general is something that could really lift a certain vegetable. Sweetness also elevates flavor. So there's chili heat, there's sweetness, and uh, there's fat. So fat really helps. So those are kind of pairing. Uh, and then processes are things that actually happen when you cook. So the, the grilling or the browning or the aging where you, you, you let something kind of mature over time, a cheese or a wine or a, or a vinegar are really good examples. The last one uh, would be infusing, which is something that happens, uh, takes a slightly longer amount of time to happen. You, you let things just sit and they kind of look after each other and give each other flavor. So for, we try to, for every great vegetable recipe, we try to find uh, a home of this nature. Of this nature. Um, then there is the, the, the um, produce, and then those are ingredients that are really intensely flavored and are really help to bring the flavor of vegetables out. So garlic and onion, which is the kind of the beginning of every good dish, but red, dishes that really rely on those two. Um, we've got uh, nuts and seeds, which are really also have got all that umami and nuttiness and and um, and uh, fattiness that that they give. Um, and then uh, we've got mushrooms, uh, which everybody knows how how you know deeply flavored th they are. And then like mild forms of sweetness that comes from uh, fruit and alcohol and sugar, which is kind of the dessert section. You always kind of have this algorithm to maximize the, the flavor and taste that you can get from vegetables. So to maximize, to really bring out the taste of a vegetable, they need to be paired. Talk me through that. I think everybody kind of intuitively knows that when you take a piece of good fish and you fry it and you squeeze it with lemon juice, it's, it's, it's ready to eat and it's super delicious. And the same probably applies to some meat and and i think with with vegetables you just need to work a little bit harder i mean there is nothing nicer than you know a fresh tomato but it needs to be super ripe and it, it does benefit from some seasoning but if you talk about like root vegetables etc you just need to to help them a little bit to you know tease the flavor out and that's the, that you do that with those kind of intense flavors that so yeah, algorithm is, is maybe a way to look at it where you really kind of understand what it is that you're dealing with. But for that particular reason, because you need to work a little bit harder with vegetables to, to kind of inject them with flavor, whether it's chili, whether it's acidity, whether it's the mushroomy flavor, you also have greater versatility because with meat, I always think like, okay, well, there's only a, there's a limit to how far you can go if you, compared to if you take a cauliflower because a cauliflower is this kind of magical vegetable that you can really process in so many ways where you can do nothing to it and you can just dress it and have it in a raw salad which is really nice with lemon juice and herbs and if you grate it or if you cut it into chunks and then you can very lightly cook it or saute it you can cook it for a very long time you can slow cook it for like a couple of hours nearly with with olive oil and butter and then it becomes this kind of wonderful thing in its own right that you could put at the center of the table uh, or you can make fritters or you can make something like from the cauliflower cheese department like a gratin and and you can char grill it and turn it into a, a salad this is kind of an endless 
options and everyone reveals a different side of it. And I just don't think that most meats have that kind of kind of versatility where you can really reinvent it and, and look at it from all these angles. You're the man who single-handedly has rehabilitated the cauliflower. It went from being the thing you never wanted to see as a kid to, uh, frankly, something you wouldn't want to be seen dead without in these parts of London. Are you want a retainer from the National Cauliflower Growers Association? I think you should plant that seed with them. But just talking about that subject for one second, because a, f- a few years ago, I was listening to the food program on Radio 4, uh, talking about the demise of the cauliflower and how everybody wants to eat broccoli. And for, for some reason, after, you know, cauliflower used to be such a, a quintessential British veg, and then everybody was converting to broccoli. Uh, for me, I think actually cauliflower is superior to broccoli, but because uh, I think broccoli just doesn't have that versatility. But, uh, and, and I just, and now, and that's, I guess that was 10 years ago. And now I think about it, actually, if you think about it, broccoli, it, cauliflower has been completely rehabilitated and everybody loves it. And I, 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 I can't take all the credit for that. It's just, I think it's just such a great vegetable and it was just there to be rediscovered. If you had to banish one vegetable, which would you choose? Yeah, I've, I've, I've had that thought before, but I did discover that you can do anything with it. You know, you can do a lot with vegetables. So for instance, Swede, quite a while I thought like, is there really so much you can do with Swede? But uh, we've got the curried Swede recipes, like little, you know, Swede steaks in this book, uh, served with, um, with a salad, really refreshing salad with, um, with, um, grapefruit. And it's just so wonderfully fresh. And I've conquered that as well. So I really don't think there is any vegetable that is beyond cooking. This is Brilliant Brains. Who would you hold up as a brilliant brain? Who have you found most inspiring? Gosh, that's a very difficult question to answer. Whether in the culinary, the literary, the political world. Our mutual friend, Nigella Lawson, I I find her very, very inspiring because I think she's... um, Nigella is the kind of person that does marry those two things together, thinking about food, but also cooking really delicious food. And whenever I I open one of her books, How to Eat, this such a classic, and and I read, and you're immediately inspired because it's got that kind of light-hearted, which is attitude, ability to talk about food and cook food and choose the right words for the right dishes. So I, I always I get inspired by her food writing and by her yeah by her by that wonderful ease. And if you were made food dictator and you could introduce one rule which restaurants across the country across the world had to abide by, what would it be? I don't know if how you translate this into a rule, but what really really bugs me is overloading plates with lots and lots of elements. I'm, I'm kind of famous for having long ingredient lists in my, in my um, recipes. And I, I put my hand up and I, I kind of, I take the shame, but, uh, but it all works for, it works towards a, a, a good end goal. You know, that's, that all needs to make sense at the very end, all the spices and herbs and processes that happen. But, Often what really bugs me is that like a real good effort is shadowed by something else that, that, that that's just people put too many things on the plate rather than like focus on what's so amazing about that cauliflower or asparagus or a piece of lamb is just totally lost by adding more another sauce and another reduction and another side. And 
it's just such a it's just such a shame because ingredients are just so good so you you, you can just spoil them so easily are we putting a number on the ingredients like two or three things are absolutely enough but also you can just eat in a sequence like i i my idea of hell is like that kind of like a christmas meal where everything is on a plate you know you've got uh, your mashed potatoes and your roast potatoes and your parsnips and carrots and your stuffing and your piece of turkey and whatever it is i think like how could you possibly taste anything on that plate and i'm a bit like that's i got that from my father who's who's um, of italian background that that respect for ingredients you eat something enjoy it and then move on to the next thing yotam otolenghi with your fabulous new cookbook flavor thanks for your time thank you very much Thanks to Yotam Otolenghi. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including gardener Monty Don beautifully capture our relationship with nature and his candid battles with depression, go to the podcast page on karmacist.com, the show's sponsors. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. Brilliant Brains.